Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I am Roberto Mazza, the host of the Jerusalem Unplugged podcast, and for the Middle Eastern Studies series today, my guest is Professor Bedros Dermatosian. Bedros is currently an Associate Professor of History at the University of Nebraska, Lincoln, and is the author of Shattered Dreams of Revolution from Liberty to Violence in the Late Ottoman Empire, which was published by Stanford in 2014. But today he joins me to talk about his latest book, The Horrors of Adana, Revolution and Violence in the Early 20th Century, published in 2022 by Stanford University Press. Now, The Horrors of Adana is very much a book about the events that occurred in the city of Adana and the surrounding regions in 1909. This is not necessarily a book about the Armenian genocide, but certainly there's a connection between the events that preceded the Armenian genocide and what occurred here in Adana, and we're going to talk about it. But for the readers, I think this is an important element. The book is very much focusing on the events that occurred in Adana. And uh, the narrative is one that looks at uh, various components uh, not just the Armenian, but also the Muslim component of the population of Adana. But first of all, Bedros, welcome. Thank you very much, Roberto, for interviewing me. It's an honor. Uh, thank you, because the book is wonderful, and it's always a pleasure uh, chatting with you. Now, the first question I have is very much about your background. If you can tell us a little bit more about yourself and also about the origins of this book. Uh, I was born and raised in East Jerusalem in the Muslim quarter. Um, I attended the Armenian school. Afterwards, I attended the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, uh, where I graduated uh, from the Department of Political Science and Islamic and Middle Eastern Studies. I started my graduate studies there, then transferred to Columbia University, where I received my PhD. Uh, afterwards, I taught at um, MIT for two years, two, three years, and then um, I got this position at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, where I've been there for, been here actually for 12 years. And uh, this is a book, uh, a part of um, a trilogy. The first one was the uh, was Shattered Dreams of Revolution, which examined the ways in which the non-dominant groups in the Ottoman Empire reacted and perceived the 1908 revolution. It was, uh, it was a research on the Arabs, Armenians, and Jews and the way in which they uh, reacted to the Young Turk revolution and uh, the way in which uh, the revolution impacted them and uh, led to serious changes in the dynamics of power and of course, uh, I discussed in it the contradictory aspects of the Young Turk Revolution, whether in terms of brotherhood, equality, liberty, Ottomanism. And the uh, first book ended with the counter-revolution of 1909. 
and I dedicated two pages to the Adana massacres in the book as uh, as an out, out, outgrowth of the uh, of the uh, counter revolution which took place on April uh, April 13, and uh, afterwards I decided to dedicate the second book to the Adana massacre in order to understand in depth as to what happened in Adana. In 1909, so it's a part of the trilogy, and the third book would be uh, about the Balkan Wars, uh, specifically uh, trying to understand the way in which non-dominant groups reacted to the Balkan Wars in Anatolia, in Istanbul, and the way in which the uh, government uh, viewed the uh, non-dominant groups and their loyalty or disloyalty during the Balkan Wars. It's not about the Balkan Wars in the Balkan, but it's the way in which the Balkan Wars uh, affected the non-dominant groups, Armenians, Arabs, Jews, Greeks, Albanians, within the Ottoman Empire. Fabulous. Thank you. Um... Now, I want to start with a few questions about your argument, the sources and the methodology. But first of all, I would like to ask you, why do you think the Adana massacres have been neglected by scholars? You make this case uh, very strongly at the very beginning of the book. And I myself, that, uh, myself I tried to dig around a few books, uh, uh, you know, in general, speaking about uh, Ottoman history, and actually I found out that there are only a few footnotes here and there, and then maybe some authors wrote a few pages, but they, they seem to have been neglected and forgotten. Why? Yeah, actually, most of the Armenian, most of, sorry, most of the uh, Middle, East stud, Middle East studies books, like the textbooks and Ottoman studies textbooks, uh, ignore uh, the uh, Adana massacres. It doesn't even appear in footnotes. When it comes to the Armenian historiography, the lion's share goes to the Armenian genocide because of its magnitude. Uh, and the previous phases of violence are kind of sidelined because of the major event, which was the Armenian genocide, which led to the annihilation of the Armenian population of the, uh, of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, hence, there isn't much concentration, not only on the Adana massacres, but on the Hamidian massacres, the previous phase of massacres. It's, it's very rudimentary, whatever is being done. There's a new scholarship that's rising, but uh, again, it's, uh, it's sidelined, it's, it's marginalized. Uh, due to its, uh, due to the fact that it is overshadowed, I should say, by the Armenian genocide, not only by Middle Eastern scholars, by Ottoman scholars, but also to a certain extent by Armenian scholars. There have been few books here and there, uh, which are important, but do not really go into depth as the, the my book does uh, in terms of sources, in terms of methodology, in terms of interdisciplinary approach. And the, my my aim in this book was to was to raise the importance of the Adana massacres so that it becomes part and parcel of the of Middle Eastern studies, of Ottoman studies, of uh, Armenian studies, of uh, you know of Turkish studies. But also the aim was to introduce a book to the new field, which is called massacre studies. So let's keep talking about the scaffolding of your book, and I really want to talk about the question of the massacres. I myself worked on urban violence, and uh, I used the uh, term riots, uh, you know, in order to define sort of my work. And here I found very interesting that uh, you define the events that occurred as massacres. So why not a genocide 
or on the other side of the spectrum, why not riots? Uh, the one important thing, for example, uh, scholar uh, Paul Brass argues, for example, that uh, it's the winning, it's the winning side, the power, powerful side, which has always the power. Let's say the winning side has always the power to define an event. So it is in terms, it is in the interest of the winning side, which is the government to that extent, to define an event as riot and not as massacre, in order to. Uh, remove any type of responsibility uh, of being responsible for for massacres. So riot uh, does does not fit the category here in the Adana massacres. It's massacres. And the reason that it's not genocide is because genocide is the uh, annihilation in part or in whole whole or in part of of a community. Uh, massacres is not annihilation, but it's has, uh, but it's, but it means uh, massacres mean to uh, discipline, but also preserve, intimidate, but also preserve the status quo that had existed in a specific region. And hence, you know, um, multiple massacres could lead to genocide, but not much genocide, or you know, vice versa. All genocide might not might not be massacres. So, thank you. I, I think this is very important to uh, so to use the right definitions when we talk about uh, events, particularly connected to violence, because otherwise we may end up just uh, generalizing and use superficially terms that are loaded with different meanings. Let me move to the question of the public sphere, which is uh, central to your argument and to the book. So you argue that conflict between Turks and Armenians developed essentially as a result of the opening of the public sphere to a larger crowd following the 1908 uh, uh, Young Turks Revolution. And I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about what is a public sphere for you and why the opening of the public sphere led to uh, conflict? Uh, one important thing that we have to understand that a semi-public sphere existed during the Abdel Hamid period. It was, it was restrained, but the Young Turk Revolution opens this, uh, this, uh, this major, major public sphere, unrestrained public sphere, as I discussed in my first book. It's a euphoric feeling that everyone suddenly realizes that uh, the ancien regime has ended. It's a beginning that we can do whatever we want. We can celebrate. We can we can uh, talk. We can criticize. There is no censorship any anymore. So there is a kind of an abuse of the public sphere, abuse of freedom of speech. Everyone starts uh, talking, criticizing. It's not only uh, it's not only you know press, but also activities, uh, processions, uh, carrying arms carrying arms, carrying banners, carrying flags, and uh, a sense that, you know, it's, it's also an abuse of the freedom that had ex- existed at the time. And many, many commentators at the period, period uh, you know, raise an issue about this, uh, this sensitive topic that we shouldn't abuse the freedom that was given to us. And the uh, public sphere uh, opens the Pandora's box of ethnic conflict, whereas in the Previous regime under Abdul Hamid, the, these ethnic tensions have been kind of uh, have been uh, restrained. The public sphere suddenly becomes uh, the major outburst of these ethnic tensions and takes a new 
uh, attire. Because if you think about that, uh, the, uh, the disgruntled elements now who have lost a lot of power during the Young Turk Revolution are also themselves using the public sphere in order to score uh, points against the Young Turks. So this is extremely important. Public sphere is the sphere in which everyone now enters into the, into the uh, major realm. Everyone, its public spheres do not become only a place of exchange of ideas and discourse, but also reenactment or enactment of identities. So it's the intermingling place of all ethnic groups uh, expressing their ideas, criticisms, joys, festivities, and it creates a lot of tensions between the disgruntled elements of ancien regime and the new elements. And of course, for the ancien regime, the key, uh, the main culprits of this constitution were the young Turks and their collaborators, the Armenians. So the Armenians, since Armenians played an important role in the revolution in terms of festivities. And if you think about, about it, most of the festivities, they were the young Turks and the Armenians with the, with the idea and the slogan of brotherhood. And if you've, I mean, you've read the book and you see how the 1908 revolution transpires in, in Adana. There are a lot of events, processions, uh, uh, but also to a certain extent, Armenians also uh, express their, their uh, feelings, euphoric feelings in sometimes extreme manners, carrying arms, processions. But uh, for them, this is a freedom, you know, freedom that was given to them as a result of revolution. So they make the most out of it. Uh, one important point, for example, that uh, attracts the criticisms of the uh, of the young Turks also, but also the people of the ancien regime, is the theatrical presentations. You know, Armenians are now uh, uh, are drunk with the uh, cultural. Uh, uh, nationalism, romanticizing the past, specifically the kingdom of Cilicia, and they put these uh, theatrical presentations in order to uh, in order to uh, uh, experience the past, in order to uh, exercise their uh, their rights and their uh, cultural rights through poetry, odes, theatrical presentations, but these do not reflect uh, well. Uh, with the people of the ancien regime, and it 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 on the contrary, it it leads to the feeling of uh, of uh, sinister aims by the Armenians in all who are now planning the so-called erecting the Armenian kingdom. Let me ask one more question about the structure of the book. Can you tell us something more about the sources that you have used? And also, where your book is located in the historiography of Turkish-Armenian relations? Uh, the sources are, uh, in terms of archives, it is based on 15 archives. I've tried to make use of the specifically the most important archives. In this case, the two most important archives are the Ottoman and the Armenian archives. Because most of the Turkish revisionist historians who write about the Adana massacres, they use the Ottoman archives only. And the Ottoman archives archives are camouflaged with terminologies, as you know, of uh, riots, disturbances, people, there is a lot of passive voice in it. And it's a government technique, you know, in order to deny 
the category of massacres and uh, you know relieve themselves from responsibility. So it's based on Ottoman archives, Armenian archives, German, Ital- uh, German, uh, Italian, uh, uh, French. Uh, and many other archives. I mean, if you say Armenian archives, there are five, six archives there. You know, the, uh, for example, I use the Armenian Revolutionary Federation archives in order to demonstrate that the Armenians did not have uh, sinister aims of uh, when they were arming themselves. The arming was based on the idea of self-defense because they were concerned that what if Abdel Hamid comes back to power and takes revenge from the young Turks and their Armenian collaborators, we should be ready for self-defense. Uh, in terms of where, and of course, it's based on 12 languages, mostly uh, uh, mostly uh, when I analyze the, uh, the international reaction to the massacres and analyze the press in Greek, in German, uh, in uh, Ladino, in Hebrew, in Arabic, and many other languages. In terms of the location or, or putting the, uh, uh, situating the book in terms of Armenian-Turkish relations, I think the book brings a lot of novelty. I do not intend to put it either in Armenian studies or in an Ottoman studies. I intend to put it in multiple levels, in Middle Eastern studies and also in global history. As, as you see, towards the end, I analyze the, I, I, I bring two other cases of massacres, the Sikh massacre of 1984 and the Odessa massacres of 19.05 in order to show the structures of violence that exist in the course of history. So it is, I mean, discipline-wise, it's wider, I think. Area field-wise, it is the Middle East, Ottoman Empire, and etc. But in terms of discipline, it's violence and massacre studies. So I try to show the structures that exists in the in in Adana and the similar structures exist in other other cases of violence, rumors, uh, interest groups, agent provocateurs, uh, 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 police, uh, local uh, local uh, notables, uh, investigation commissions, nominal justice, and uh, many other aspects of these massacres. Thank you. This was like a great uh, uh, sort of beginning. And so now I want to start talking about uh, the book. Now, for those who are not familiar with the Adana region and the history of Adana, the city, and again, the surrounding, the first and second chapters do provide an important historical context, looking at uh, both the local, but also the macro level. And particularly, uh, I think both chapters do do a very good job in uh, showing the role that Adana played uh, in the larger context. So the narrative always goes from uh, the local to the broader to the larger one, even international. And I was wondering if you can uh, summarize for us the period leading up to the 1908 revolution. Of course, Adana, in its strategic location, played a dominant role not only for Armenians but also for the Turks, Muslims, and Ottomans in general because of its location on the Mediterranean Sea. In southern Turkey, on the northern section of the Mediterranean Sea, it wasn't only a hub for cotton production but also for its importance for Armenians as being the uh, the region for the last Armenian kingdom, the independent kingdom of Cilicia, eleven ninety eight to thirteen seventy five. But what what I show in the that in the nineteenth century there are major 
processes that leads to the escalation of uh, no intensification of ethnic tensions, and these transformations or administrative reforms, as you know, as a result of the uh, Tanzimat reforms, sedentarization and pacification of the tribes, influx of refugees resulting from competition over resources, these refugees coming from the Caucasus or from the Balkans, changes in the land code where Armenians benefit from the 1858 land code and economic development. But uh, among these, I think it has the most important has to do with the economic development and specifically the cotton production. In the second half of the 19th century, the importance of Adana uh, becomes uh, heightened due to the American Civil War, where, uh, where the cotton production declined. And global markets, specifically the British, started looking for alternative uh, sources for uh, cotton. And then they started looking at Egypt, uh, Adana, and, the, and, and India. So Adana's importance starts rising as a result of the uh, of the cotton production, but also the mechanization and the development of uh, implements of production also leads to major tensions. Adana is not only the hub of cotton production or Silesia to that extent, but also it was the place where annually around 100 to 120,000 labor migrant labor workers would come from the surrounding provinces to work in Adana. They would do that in two seasons, one for the spring and the other is for winter. A spring is, is tilling and winter is for harvesting. And the, the season is important because it's in April. So when the massacre takes place, you have thousands of uh, migrant workers coming from different parts of the provinces who are in the city. Let's discuss about these migrant workers. The ratio is one to two. If there there are uh, 60,000 migrant workers, about 20 to 30,000 are Armenians. But also we realize that uh, Armenians are becoming much more dominant in the cotton production. They are importing uh, or importing uh, implements, importing new machinery, and these new machines of tilling and harvesting are, are uh, leading to major decrease in the demand of labor, laborers and causing major dissatisfaction among the labor workers. And there is an angry, there is an economic envy and, and, and frustration among the Muslim uh, laborers towards the Armenians because in the past, uh, 100, you know, the work on a specific land, 100 laborers would work. And now we have the machine, you only need 10 people. So it leads to major decline in the demand of uh, of laborers. And and because these laborers, I mean, they, they, that's their own work. They come twice a year to Adana or Silesia to work, and they sustain themselves during the whole, whole year. But now there is a major change that's coming in the... <laughs> in the cotton production. So this is one of the important things. But realizing the inter-ethnic relations in Adana during the Hamidi period, it has, uh, the situation was calmer than other sections of the Ottoman Empire. Adana did not suffer the Hamidi massacres due to the cordial relationships of the Adana uh, governor, uh, Bahri Pasha, with the Armenian leadership. Uh, of course, in the end of 19th century, when the diplomatic uh, uh, diplomatic means to solve the Armenian question has proven uh, proven uh, un- proven uh, insufficient, 
uh, Armenian revolutionary groups emerged, and they were also active in the in the region of Adana. They would come from Cyprus, and uh, their aim was mostly to uh, bring uh, pamphlets, uh, smuggle arms, and kind of uh, teach the uh, locals re- for, of resistance. It wasn't a kind of a major thing, but the rumors and the idea that they are the Armenians are preparing for an uprising doesn't start with the 1900 revolution. It goes back to the Hamidian period. But due to the fact that public uh, public uh, sphere was restrained, these rumors do not uh, do not have the major uh, impact. And due to the fact that the governor is strong. Uh, it doesn't uh, lead to major escalation of violence. But regardless of, uh, Roberto, regardless of the major transformation that we're speaking, I mean, these transformations happen in different areas. Agency is important here, and specifically characters and people play a dominant role. You have Bahri Pasha, you have, uh, you have um, uh, Ottoman Muslim notables headed by the major landowner and businessman, Abdel Qadir Baghdadi Zadeh, you have another Armenian figure, Garabet Gokterelian, who uh, who who uh, raised the heck out of the uh, Ottomans. They were afraid of him because they uh, called him as a revolutionary. You have the Armenian uh, Armenian bishop uh, uh, Bishop Musher, who was the prelate of Adana. So we have major characters now also having uh, tensions among each other. So, for example. The Muslim notables were against the governor, Bahri Pasha, and they co- complained about him uh, because of his close relationship with the Armenians. So you have, uh, you have these political economic tensions uh, simmering in the Hamidian period, but also you have these personalities, clash of personalities that are taking place. So the rumors and the Ajan provocateurs about Armenian uprising does do, do not start in the 1908 revolution. They are already kind of simmering during the Hamidian period, but the 1900 revolution now raises the level because now everyone is buying weapons, Armenians are buying weapons, Muslims are buying weapons because, I mean, I found like documents from the American uh, uh American consulate uh, from the U.S. archives, but American consulate in in uh, in Mersine, uh, American gun gun companies writing to the vice consul there, saying we have these uh, new things, new uh, machine guns, new Remingtons, etc. If you want to introduce them to Adana, you know, it's kind of a global business of arms businesses. You know, it's it's interesting the way in which. Uh, in, in the way in which arms play, weapons play the dominant role during the massacres because they they were used as a primary tool in killing, followed by blunt instruments. So again, uh, again, the technology of violence, technology of killing becomes much more heightened during the uh, Adana massacres. I want to ask you something about uh, rumors. You already mentioned, the, you know, rumors that were circulating. Um, amongst the population. For instance, like the one that the Armenians were working towards the reestablishment of the Kingdom of Cilicia. And I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about this. What is the Kingdom of Cilicia and how did this rumor actually emerge and why were they so important in uh, changing the relationship between Armenian and, and Turks? I mean, rumors are usually underestimated in the course of history, but rumors are extremely lethal. 
because of its rapid uh, spread. Rumors are usually unverified accounts of events. They lead to solidification of ethnic boundaries. They lead to solidification of uh, of uh, feelings. They uh, uh, they raise the level of tensions and raise the fear, whether it's imagined or real, the fear of local people against the, the other. So rumors to that extent play the role of uh, uh, pouring gasoline on a fire and uh, raising the level of tensions. Now, why Cilicia? Armenians celebrated the past, the cultural past, the political past of a kingdom which was the last kingdom last independent kingdom, last independent entity that Armenians had, which was the kingdom of Cilicia, 1198 and 1375. The capital of Cilicia was Cis, the city of Cis, which was the spiritual center until the Armenian genocide, spiritual center of the Catholic state of Cis, the most important uh, uh, spiritual center in the Ottoman Empire. And to that extent, Armenians were aware about the importance of their past. And due to the economic transformations, there were a lot of Armenian influx of Armenian laborers uh, seeking better opportunities because of the development of the economy in the region of Cilicia from the different provinces. So the leadership in Adana and the, and the young church to that extent, but also the disgruntled elements of the ancien regime, were realizing these movements. They were they started making their own kind of prophecy based on rumors. The prophecy was the following, and this is the prophecy starts in the Hamidian Hamidian uh, Hamidian uh, period, and then kind of uh, culminates in the Young Turk Revolution and afterwards during the other massacres. The prophecy was the following: that the aim and the intention of the Armenians was to establish the Kingdom of Cilicia by uh, gathering the Armenians from all over the uh, empire and concentrate them into the region of Cilicia using the means of revolution and violence with the aim, with the aid of European powers, they were going to establish the Kingdom of Cilicia. And they were already aware about other cases uh, such as this that happened in the region of Lebanon, for example, during the Lebanese Civil War, where you know, where the Europeans interfered, European humanitarian intervention took place, and then you have the establishment of autonomous Lebanon with the Regalement Organique. So they were thinking that the Armenians are thinking in the same manner. So uh, when the Young Turk Revolution takes place, Armenians now, you know, there is an outburst. There is, uh, you know, public uh, festivities carrying uh, uh, pictures of images, the coat of arms of the Cilician kingdom. So it kinds of now it kinds of feeds into the prophecy. It kinds of feeds into the prophecy that they're really playing something here, especially that theatrical presentation, which the topic of the theatrical presentation was about the kingdom of Cilicia, where it was it was called Timurlane and the fall of uh, and Sivas, uh, city of Sivas. And uh, towards the end of the thing, uh, towards the end of the uh, theatrical presentation, Armenians uh, apparently yell, Armenia, 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 and this sends the, sends the uh, wrong messages to the, uh, to the Muslim notables and the government. Armenians arming themselves also does not help the uh, prophecy. So when the first massacre takes place, that uh, in the inter 
massacre period between the two massacres, the Young Turk newspaper Ehtidal uh, by Ehsan Fikri, who was, a, who was the leader of the Young Turks, now publishes these rumors as not rumors, as kind of real things. So this is the now the, uh, the realization of the prophecy that Armenians did attempt an uprising, a failed uprising, in order to establish the Kingdom of Cilicia. And that issue, number 33 of Etidal newspapers, newspaper contributes to the solidification of the rumors and solidification of the idea that indeed the Armenians initiated an uprising. And, you know, rumors are rumors, but once people read the rumors in a written format, it becomes real, you know. Rumors are orally transmitted uh, on verified accounts, but if it's written, now people start believing that indeed Armenians start, and it contributes to the second wave of massacres. So to that extent, the Kingdom of Cilicia, its importance to the Armenians, its strategic location on the sea, uh, supposedly the British, the French are going to intervene once the massacre takes place and help Armenians establish an independent entity a la uh, Lebanese style. But it never happened. Uh, so the prophecy didn't realize itself. Uh, Armenians never established a kingdom there after the massacres. Europeans did not intervene, and I discussed this why in this ch- section of the, you know, when I problematized the idea of uh, European of uh, humanitarian intervention. And so the prophecy does not take place. It, it was based on a rumor. But it really fuels the second wave of violence, which is the second wave of massacres, which takes place between April 25 and 27. Rumors like conspiracy theories do produce consequences, visible ones. And so let's move now to talk about the first wave of massacres between April 14 and April 16, 1909. What happened? So here's the thing. Uh, There are triggers. One of the important triggers has to do with, every massacre has a trigger, by the way, in the course of history, all right? In the Sikh massacre, for example, it was the assassination of Indira Gandhi by her two two Sikh bodyguards. And of course, the bodyguards are Sikh and Henry, for example. In the case of the Adana massacres, an Armenian is attacked by three Muslims. The Armenian uh, kind of supposedly in self-defense uh, kills one of the Muslims, and hence the identity of the killer becomes kind of generalized, that it is an Armenian, so the Armenians are responsible for it. The guy escapes to Cyprus, apparently, or the Armenians hide him in the Armenian quarter, and the people of the deceased ask, for, for, ask the Armenians to hand him the murderer, the Armenian, but they refuse to do so. They say, well, we don't know where he is. And hence there is a, there's kind of the beginning of escalation of the tensions, and of course, funeral becomes an important point. The funeral of this person and the second person who dies become an important, uh, important medium for mobilization of masses. And mobilization is not only mobilization, it's about the rhetoric that's being said there, about Armenians and the young church, their collaborators, but this is the small trigger that starts the snowball effect, but the major trigger is the news of the counter-revolution that comes from the Istanbul and says that the counter-revolution is take, has taken place, the Sultan is back on power, and it really now is the time to turn the events into the, uh, turn the uh, status quo back to its normalcy, and it starts, and, and now there's, it's the time to strike against Armenians. But emotions, fear, 
rumors play an important role. On the morning of 14th, Armenians closed their shops, fearing that the Muslims are going to attack them. Muslims see the Armenians closing their shops, now start thinking that the Armenians are going to attack them. They close their shops, so it's every each part are feeding each other. And then the event starts. Armenians are fighting, but their position is defensive because the Muslim population. And, you know, here's the thing. If the Armenian genocide, there was an overarching ideology by the perpetrators. There isn't. There is no overarching ideology in the case of the uh, in the case of the Adana massacres. It's mostly to preserve the status quo. The uh, the mob is cons- consists of different interest groups: Circassians, Cretans, refugees, uh, Bashibozuks, uh, police, reserves. Uh, migrant workers, they all have different aims. You know, for migrant workers, for example, it might be a fast access to uh, material gain. The same for other groups, for villagers. Uh, Others have more uh, sinister aims, such as, uh, you know, uh, let's teach Armenians a lesson. So there is no overall ideology in in, in kind. So the attack is on the Armenian quarter, and it lasts for a few days. Uh, Armenians put a strong, uh, strong defense of the Armenian quarter. They kill army, they kill Muslims too. But the ratio is about I don't know about maybe five to two or five to one. So for every five Armenians, there are one or two Muslims killed, and uh, that's the first wave of the massacre. It ends after three days when the when the local when uh, the local a local notable from the Armenian quarter intervenes and brings uh, things, you know, uh, and both sides agree to put down the weapons. And that's the first wave of the massacre. Uh, the city is destroyed because of its uh, structure. So burning is a major component of these massacres. Uh, city is destroyed. There are uh, hundreds of, if not thousands of uh, uh, injured people on both sides. And one of the things that contributed to the burning of the city is that because of the uh, economic uh, importance of the region, a lot of Armenians were uh, were kept uh, cottons in their basements because they were also weaving cottons and, you know, they were in the cotton business. And uh, the structure of the houses at the time was that there was a, a wooden plank in the middle of the roof that that kept the roof uh, stable. And once that, that wooden plank, you know, burnt, the whole building collapsed. If you see images uh, from the Adana massacres, you would see the whole city is devastated. Think of uh, maybe London or Paris during World War II. So conflagration of the city plays an important role. Churches are burned, everything is burned, and the, uh, and the mob is much stronger than the thing, than the... Uh, than the uh, than the Armenians so to that extent, uh, uh, but that's the city of Adana. But as you know, Roberto, the uh, massacres spread to different parts of the provinces, such as uh, such as Tarsus, for example, where now the uh, the uh, uh, the mob ta- takes a train with gasoline and travels with the train to Tarsus in order to burn Armenian institutes and Armenian houses and kill Armenians. So the rumors now spread throughout the province of Adana that Armenians have revolted in Adana and they killed all the Muslims. And now if you were a Muslim living in different parts of the Adana, you still would believe this. And then you start retaliating against the Armenians. So rumors to that extent were not confined to the city of Adana. They spread to different parts of the uh, of the province. And eventually, 
also pulled into the province of Aleppo. So, but, this, but the difference is that in the province of Aleppo, despite the fact that there were specific cases of massacres, the volley of the province of Aleppo was much stronger, was much inept, uh, was much, sorry, was much, uh, much professional and stronger than the volley Javad Bey of Adana, who was inept, who was incompetent to really deal with the situation. So, again, if you think about that, individuals, agency plays an important role in controlling the situation. And uh, the Vali was uh, unable, the commander of chief in Adana was unable to deal with the situation. So they, 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 should, they should have been held responsible uh, for the events which they were attaching. So this was the first wave of the massacres. I must say that in the book, you actually discuss with a lot of details the massacres in, in a variety of locations, which we don't have the time to deal with. But uh, for the readers, I think that's an important uh, uh, sort of section to look at and to see uh, how the massacres occurred all around Adana and they were not confined to the city itself. Let me move to chapter five. Chapter five is called False Protection. And, and essentially, it's focusing on the second wave of massacres. But I want to ask you, why false protection? What happened? Uh, there was a sense uh, that uh, everything was over, but then it restarted. And so how did the second wave unfold? A very good question, uh, Roberto. Yes, there was a sense that the false, uh, false, there was a sense that the protection was going was taking place. Of course, when the other massacres are taking place, the echoes go to Istanbul, and there is a. You know, I write, write write in the book about the view from Istanbul, and the government takes the decision to send three battalions, three to four battalions from Rumelia, from Tekfirda, also to Adana. And uh, when the when the Armenians uh, hear that the uh, that the uh, that the battalions are coming, they're finally relieved relieve that uh, forces are coming in order to protect them from the an, an onslaught or a repetition of the of the second wave of massacres. And in the interwar period, in the intermassacre period, uh, as you remember, I discussed about the Etidan newspaper and the quote-unquote verification of the prophecy that indeed Armenians are. But also during that time, there is humanitarian aid, uh, treating the wounded, and there are few hospitals being established by the British uh, vice consul Dwight Wiley and his wife, Lillian Wiley, and other German German hospitals and, um, and other in order to treat the wounded. Uh, so when the battalions arrive on April 24 into Mersin on April, uh, April 25, they move to the city of Adana, three battalions and camp there. And eventually, the second wave of massacre starts. Now, with the participation of a lot of soldiers of, the, of these battalions. And here is the enigma to that extent. Armenian historiography says that this was the work of the, of the Young Turks, of the Central Committee. And they were sent to Adana in order to complete the, uh, complete the, uh, the massacres. Is this, is this the case, I, I ask in my book? I don't think so. I mean, uh, despite the fact that I do argue that local CUP members did play an important role in escalating the tensions and in creating, uh, uh, creating the uh, situation for the eruption of the second wave of violence, even if not the first wave of violence. But there are multiple 
multiple explanations as to why the second wave of massacres started. One of them, for example, is that when the Armenian, when the when the battalions camped in the in, in Adana, shots were fired at them by Armenians, supposedly, and this led to the second wave of massacres. Another point of view says that uh, when the uh, when the battalion soldier visited the Armenian neighborhood and asked for Armenians to uh, hand in their weapons, Armenians refused, and then clashes started, leading to the second wave of massacre. So there are a few interpretations that I present in the book, uh, but the idea that Armenians fired them from the Armenian quarter becomes a false. Uh, it proves to be false because when the investigation commission comes, they really see that. The distance between the Armenian quarter and the camp, there is a hill in front of it, you know, and and hence it's impossible to fire from the Armenian quarter on the on on the things. So most probably, the soldiers came with preconceived notions about the Armenians. Uh, they participated in the second wave of massacres for financial games, gains, but also. Other soldiers protected Armenians at the time, and they saved Armenians. So we cannot necessarily say that the uh, that the second wave of massacres were ordered by the government in order to uh, massacre the Armenians. There is another another. This is one of the points in order to prove or disapprove the role. There is another another important point which is deals with the first wave of massacres, and that's the role of the. Uh, under secretary of the government uh, in the uh, uh, of the Ottoman uh, of the Ottoman government, when the massacres take place, they send the governor send a, uh, send a telegram to the under secretary, uh, who answers uh, saying that disturbances began in Adana and what should we do, and the under secretary of the government says that. Uh, make sure to protect all the uh, Christian or the foreigner institutions and banks and companies. So for Armenians, this means that protect the foreigners but kill the Armenians. So it is another another thing that you can view it, another fact that you can view it view it from both sides. Is it an order? Is it a is it a euphemistic say it's a, you know sentence to protect Armenians, protect foreigners, and kill Armenians? That's that's up to debate and up to a historian to analyze it. Before we we talk about the post massacres period, particularly the period of the investigations, I want to read a passage, actually the last paragraph in your conclusion. The crimes perpetrated in the 20th century have demonstrated that no society in the world is immune to mass violence. To prevent the occurrence of such violence, or violent episodes, it is imperative that we understand why and how past acts of massacres and genocides took place. More importantly, it is necessary to confront the conundrum of how and why ordinary people can become perpetrators of violence in a very short period of time. I was wondering if you can comment on this, because I found it very powerful and very important. One important thing that I raise in the book, as you see, that there is no there is no religion or society that has predisposition for violence, and specifically, you know, this orientalist view about Islam, violence, rage, etc. So I try to I try to refute that approach, and I argue that every society, regardless of ethnic, religious backgrounds, are prone to violence. Even democratic societies 
might fall into the into the abyss of genocide or massacres. And I think every human being has a kind of an evil aspect into, I mean, all due respect to all human beings, but I think naturally there's an evil aspect within human beings. And this evil aspect is tamed, educated through civilization and education and becomes, and we become supposedly good human beings. But when the time comes, when the context is there, we are as, 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 as animals, quote unquote, as animals, as, 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 as the mortal fear, as it said in, 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 used in genocide studies, we suddenly, we might be able to perpetrate acts of violence that we wouldn't be, we, and, and otherwise we, we couldn't do it in normal times. So it all depends on the context, on the situation, on our emotions, on what leads to us. Uh, I mean, you will do the same, I'll do the same in protecting our own beloved, our families, etc. So to that extent, violence is inherent to human beings. It's not confined to specific religion, society, or culture. It's, it's part of human nature, I think. And the way in which we tame violence, we control violence, is through controlling ourselves, is to teaching ourselves through education through through uh, civilized civilizing so through civilization but the most important part is that you know, ordinary human beings can become evil and can become killers and this has been proven in the case of the holocaust and other major cases of violence and so my 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 point of view here is that you know the perpetrators of the Adana massacres are not necessarily evil themselves, are not, you know, kind of the, you know, the same uh, argument of uh, functionalist versus intentionalist that, you know, in the Holocaust that, uh, that anti-Semitism was part of the German culture. The same, the same way you can argue about the, about the Ottomans, that every Ottoman hated the Armenians uh, to that extent that they were, every single opportunity they were going to kill them. But, Similar things happen. I mean, look at the look at the uh, ethnic cleansing that happened uh, 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 against the Muslims in the Balkans. That they were ethnically cleansed and came as refugees to the to Anatolia. But now they realize that Armenians are a threat to them, so they started killing Armenians. So a kind of you know uh, every uh, kind of every I think every society is prone to violence, is capable of violence, and is uh, vulnerable to violence. Thank you. Um, I have a few questions left, and I really want to focus on the uh, events uh, that happened after the facts. And I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about uh, the role of the press and also about the humanitarian organizations that operated in the region. Did they distinguish between Muslims and Christians, or they worked towards the uh, sort of welfare of all vo of those involved in the massacres? A very good question, uh, Roberto. I mean, in press, the reason I show the press is that uh, despite the fact that today the Adana massacres are marginalized, at the time it was a global event covered by even the Omaha Bee here. It was on the front page in Nebraska, Omaha Bee. And uh, I showed that the press played an important role from Greece to Istanbul, from Izmir to London, from New York to Boston, from Cairo to Geneva, from Australia to, to uh, Hungary, everyone was aware about the Adana massacres. But then it faded. 
But the press played an important role in raising awareness, and raising awareness played an important role in the fundraising efforts. Fundraising efforts played an important role in alleviating the suffering of Armenians, because Armenians, the ratio of the, if you see the ratio of the victims, it's it's two, it's one to ten. It's one to ten for every one Muslim killed. There's ten Armenians who were killed. So if you think about the uh, refugees to that extent, the majority or about 90% of them were Armenians, Christians, but also Syriacs, Chaldeans, uh, Greeks, and many others. Those were the minorities. And uh, humanitarian intervention did not take place, as, you, as, as I discuss in the book, because humanitarian intervention is a different terminology. In the 19th century, humanitarian intervention took place in the case of Lebanon, in the case of Crete and Greece, whereby Europeans interfered, intervened physically in order to stop massacres. The same situation did not take place in the case of Adana. Supposedly, it was, was part of the prophecy where European powers were going to intervene and establish the Kingdom of Cilicia, which didn't take place. But humanitarian aid uh, was given on multiple levels. The Ottoman government gave about 30,000 golden lira. Uh, The Armenians established their own Armenian uh, aid committees. The Europeans did that, the American Red Cross, and there were international committees established. But also it was somehow problematic. Uh, for humanitarian aid, Christian humanitarian aid in the 19th century or the early 20th century, the victim has always been the Christian. So that there wasn't any, that as, as Keith Wotenpoe says, that that became the characteristics of the modern humanitarian, uh, humanitarian assistance or aid, humanitarianism, that the aid would only go to the Christians. But in the Adana case, the Ottoman government also helped the Ottomans and, and uh, you know, the international, uh, international uh, aid committee, relief committee in Adana also helped the Muslims and the Christians uh, at the same time. But Christians, also, of course, being the majority, they took the majority share of the aid. And to that extent, also Armenians were very critical of the, of the, of the other uh, European uh, European uh, uh, humanitarian aid, such as establishing or efforts such as establishing uh, orphanages uh, in order to house the Armenian orphans. You have thousands of Armenian orphans now need care, and they were specifically critical that these orphans are going to be raised uh, by German missionaries or French missionaries in order, and then you know uh, be. Uh, be uh, acculturated with these uh, with these cultures. So uh, also the public sphere plays an important role here. And the first time you see Armenians are actively criticizing the Ottoman government for its uh, delay in supplying aid. And you know, but humanitarianism played uh, an important role. But there wasn't no but there was no humanitarian intervention. So after the facts occurred, two court-martials had been sent to investigate what happened. So I was wondering if you can tell us why two and what did they establish. And also, in the last chapter, you play the lawyer, so to speak, and you discuss the implementation of the Ottoman Penal Code, and you make an argument, which I found very interesting and important here to discuss, that in Adana, justice, eventually, 
was achieved only nominally. Why? Uh, let's start with the investigation commissions. Of course, as a result of lobbying by Armenians in the center and as a result of international pressure on the government, there were two commissions that were sent by the government, by the, by the state, to investigate as to what happened in Adana. There were two commissions and there, were, uh, there was a court-martial. I'll start with the commissions. One of them was the government commission, which was sent by Faik Bey and Haruti Mostichan. And the second one was the Parliamentary Commission, which was sent by Hagop Babigian and Yusuf Keman. And I argue that the Parliamentary Commission is, is, is really more important than the Government Commission. They came to Adana in order to investigate as to what happened and write a report about the events and in order to uh, report to the Parliament. One was supposedly uh, aimed at reporting to the Parliament, whereas the second one aimed at reporting to the uh, Government. So one important thing, one important figure here is Hagop Babigyan. Babigyan was a staunch CUP member and he was sent for a specific reason. He was a CUP member. So supposedly he wasn't going to be pro-Armenian or uh, in his uh, reports. So Babigyan comes to Adana, investigates and uh, is shocked by the events and returns back immediately uh, criticizing the investigation, criticizing the court-martial that was sent to Adana. I'll discuss the court-martial in a second. And his criticism leads to the uh, resignation of the uh, first court-martial that was sent by Istanbul from Istanbul and leading to the uh, formation of the second court-martial. Uh, Babigian writes a lengthy report, about 80 pages, and uh, he criticizes uh, the the uh, uh, the events, etc. But three days prior to his uh, appearance in the in the parliament to read his report, he dies, a kind of mysteriously. And that's an important thing that I discussed whether he was poisoned or not. But his family members, his daughter, I have an interview with his daughter, was recorded in the 70s. He says that two CUP members visited him. Uh, gave him a cigarette, poison cigarette, and apparently he was going to, uh, they say, I don't know if it's true or not, they were going to, uh, he was going to implement, uh, not implement, but implicate this central CUP in the massacre. So I don't know if it's true or not, but the report doesn't appear. And the first time the report appears is 1911-12. It's an English or French version, but the Armenian version appears only in 1919. Till today, we don't have the Ottoman version of the report. But Habhagob Babigyan plays an important role in even plays an important role in bringing nominal justice. Babigyan plays an important role in bringing nominal justice, and I'll discuss as to why. Now, court-martial. When the Adana, Adana massacres end, there is a local court-martial established in Adana, by some of the perpetrators of the massacres and the local governor, and uh, immediately they uh, implicate Armenians and uh, and you know and uh, uh, that they were the responsible for the massacres and they really initiated a failed uprising in order to establish of the Kingdom of Cilicia. Hundreds of Armenians are imprisoned as well as Muslims are imprisoned. Uh, Armenians under torture now testify, Kotanko testify that the prelate of uh, Adana, who was now in, in Egypt because he has gone to Egypt in order to fundraise when the massacres take place, that he was really planning an uprising in order to establish himself as the king of Cilicia. Under duress and under, under pressure and torture, they write testimonies. 
So Armenians complain about this, and the government now decides to send an official court martial from under the presidency of Kenan Pasha from Istanbul, who comes, but he does a major, the court martial does a major mistake. They take over the testimonies and the report that was done with that fake court martial and and uh, and take them as prima facie, meaning that this is the truth. So what they do is now they try the Armenians, six Armenians are uh, hanged on the gallows and uh, about 30 Muslims are also executed. Some of them were even innocent. Armenians are furious that the real culprits are, have gone uh, unpunished. And who are the real cul- culprits? They're the commander of Adana, Ramzi Pasha, the, uh, 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 the, uh, uh, the notable Abdel Qadir Baghdadi Zadeh, the governor of Adana, Javad Pasha, Hassan Fikri, the editor of Adana, and many other important figures who really played an important role in uh, in intensification of the tensions and leading and playing an important role in the massacres. And after the role played by Hagop Babigian in aborting the second aborting the first court martial that was sent from Istanbul, a second court martial is sent under the presidency of Ismail Fazil Pasha who now comes to Adana and, uh, and uh, arrests uh, the, uh, these figures, important figures, but uh, the court martial provides them with very light sentences. These light sentences ranged from two-year banishments to one week or one month in prison, whereas other Muslims have received the death sentence. And this is this thing I raise in the book, uh, Roberto. Who do you... Who do you convict or who do you sentence? The bullets or the person who pulled the trigger? I mean, the Muslims, the poor peasants who participated in the massacres were only participants. In my point of view, you have to judge, you have to accuse and, and, and convict the real people behind these events and not the, and not the actual bullets, the per people who, t- who pulled the trigger. And that's why... I call that there was a nominal justice that has achieved in Adana because the real culprits in the Adana massacre escaped justice and only the poor peasants who some of them were innocent or others really just participated in killing, raping, etc. were uh, received the death sentence. Around 400 people were convicted, half of them who were released by uh, as due to uh, different holidays, such as the enthronement of the sultan. You know, in the Ottoman Empire, uh, prisoners were released as a result of holidays. If it's Ramadan, if it's the uh, sultan enthronement. So, and towards the end, during World War I, all of them were released uh, in order to participate, uh, mobilized in the war. Uh, to that extent, nominal justice was achieved. But if you think about that, is there a true justice? Has there been true justice that has been achieved in post-massacre period in the course of history? Not even in the case of Holocaust, where about 30 people have been convicted, leadership, many escaped justice, many, uh, you know, under fake passports, Nazis uh, went to uh, South America, Argentina, and many other places, but also in the case of the Sikh massacres, 
in the case of Odessa massacres, in the case of Sabra Shatila, and many other cases of massacres, there is no there is nominal justice. There is no real justice. The question is that is there real justice? You know? That's always hard to uh, establish, right? So I have one last question, and I really want to go back to the beginning. The horrors of Adana is a story of hate produced by a variety of causes, as we discussed throughout the podcast. But there's one thing I didn't ask, and this is about the role of emotions. So what was the role of emotions before, during, and after the massacres? Emotions before the massacres, you mean in the Hamidian period or before the massacres? I would say before the massacres, perhaps also stretching into the Median period, the period that led to eventually the outbreak of the massacres. I'll start from the revolution. Emotions were very high. Emotions of euphoria, emotions of uncertainty, emotions of fear, emotions of affective disposition, emotions that the others are planning something. From Armenian perspective, there is uh, emotions of a new beginning, positive emotions, but also emotions of uncertainty, emotions that once the litmus, once the euphoric feelings have faded, the real litmus test has begun. So there is a lot of emotions. And once the, once the massacre started or began, emotions played an important role in solidification of boundaries, of now portraying the other as the enemy on both sides, creating the figure of an imagined fear. All right? Because regardless... If you are the victim or the perpetrator to that extent, if from the victim it's not imagined fear, it's the real fear because you are being massacred. But for the perpetrator, the imagined fear is real fear for him, you know? Unless you're the agent provocateur who, are, who, who, who you're playing on the nerves or the emotions of people. Fear is fear, whether it's imagined or not imagined. But who plays a dominant role in really solidifying the fear and raising the level of the fear are those people who have stake in leading to the massacres, who who have stake in returning the status quo back to its normalcy, because massacres are a tool used by the weak entity in order to intimidate the other group and reverse the situation to the pre-massacre, pre-revolution period. So fear plays an important role in all massacres, in all genocide, in all war. I mean, even today, for example, in even more democratic countries, look at the uh, January 6th riots in, 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 uh, in, in D.C., you know, fear played an important role in, among the rioters that, you know, the imagined fear that the elections have been, you know, have been stolen from them. And, you know, and uh, who, who, is playing, uh, who is playing on these fears are major uh, stakeholders, interest groups, you know, right-wing interest groups who are capitalizing on these fears. And capitalization on fears during massacres, riots, and major outbursts play an important role. Not uh, in the case for Sikh massacres, for example, uh, members of the Indian National Congress also play an important role in uh, settling scores against the Sikh and, uh, you know, in order to achieve their sinister aims. This was Bedros Dermatosian, author of 
The Horrors of Adana, Revolution and Violence in the Early 20th Century, published by Stanford University Press in 2022. Bedros, thank you so much. Thank you very much, Roberto, for giving me the opportunity.